One of the things that process philosophy says is ontology is, is, a, is a question that comes late to the game, right? And that underneath ontology is this sort of more primordial value structure, uh, will or love. And Buddhism actually talks of these terms. So it has this effect of trying to deontologize, to defixate uh, our sense of reality, but to allow us to be open to what is experientially, you know, ecstasy, wonder, bliss, joy, all of these sort of transcendental affects. And so if we can talk about that fundamental value structure, we open ourselves up to the full range of our experience. Whereas if we're talking ontology and we're just talking about what is, um, there's a certain flatness to it uh, that doesn't really get us to these spaces. And then we have to constantly figure out how to get out of ontology into these spaces. But if you start with value structures, if you start with value, if you make that shift, then suddenly a lot of problems go away and a lot of uh, sort of philosophical problems that we've had in, in history actually start to sort of dissolve. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Dr. Jason Taxoni-Hewitt. Jason is an interdisciplinary researcher investigating the semiotic anthropology of worlds and the human ecology of meaning. He holds various degrees in transcultural semiotics, media ecology, religion, and education with an emphasis on decolonizing knowledges. In his professional life as a cognitive justice worker, he currently supports the Unitarian Universalist Church of Studio City in the role of Director of Religious Exploration. He studies divinity and the process philosophy of religions at Claremont School of Theology, where his research explores the axiology of geoengineering and terraforming as informed by traditional many-worlds cosmologies and theopoetics. In this episode, Jason and I discuss how Jason's Buddhist and Sufi philosophical perspectives inform his work as a theosemiotician. We cover all kinds of ground from the influence of theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli on contemporary cosmology, to the difference between Eastern and Western philosophical traditions, to what is most exciting to Jason about the field of theopoetics today in light of his integration of a process philosophical perspective. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Before we get into all the, the fun things that we have planned to talk about, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your story. Uh, what sort of formed you to come to the perspective that you hold now? And I mean, I'm interested in biographical stuff as well as philosophical stuff, whatever you want to throw in, any details. So let us know a little bit more about, about Jason. Well, um, I think the best way to understand is sort of where I started. Um, my intellectual journey actually started uh, uh, as a poet, not as an academic or as a scholar. Um, and I had a very rough tangle with language in which I discovered that it was going to be the master, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, being young and ambitious, I decided to fight back a little bit and see where I could take it. Um, and over the period of time that I was sort of wrestling with the questions of poetry, what is poetry? How do we relate to poetry? How do we, how do we think in poetry? Um, those kinds of questions uh, took me into philosophical spaces. They took me into religious spaces. Uh, they took me into uh, spaces of linguistics and 
you know, I came along sort of initially in the 90s, so it was the big hot moment of postmodern analytic uh, language and this kind of work. So um, I was sort of immersed in these questions of, of meaning and uh, really of cultural generativity. How do we form our cultures? How do we understand our cultures? How do we participate in those uh, sort of structures in ways that are meaningful, uh, but also in ways that are positive and contribute in uh, good ways to lives well lived, as the philosophers say. Um, so uh, from there, uh, I continued and pursued as aggressively as I was able uh, into spaces that uh, should not have been mine by right, uh, philosophy, religion, <laughs> some of these <laughs> yeah. areas. Yeah. Um, and that's just been a, a lifelong process for me. And mm -hmm. uh, at a certain point, I stopped trying to master the things I was looking into and started letting them master me. Mm. Um, and I think that's the space that I live in these days. Cool. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about what that means for you in terms of your religious perspective. Mm. Yeah, well, I think one of the things I've learned to do over the years is to embrace complexity um, and to sort of fear simplicity. <laughs> um, you know, I think simplicity certainly has its place um, and is certainly, uh, at the end of the day, beneficial. Uh, we want to have uh, clear and, uh, how to say, um, uncomplicated lives. Um, we want the problems we have to be generative problems. We want to encounter the world as a puzzle. We want to encounter the world as a sort of abode of meaning. Uh, we aren't really interested in uh, tackling it as uh, a series of challenges in the sense of like, how am I going to feed myself? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, that kind of complexity is is problematic but there is a good kind of complexity and that good complexity is something that i've tried to just sort of allow myself to experience um because the world at the end of the day is complicated um it's messy it smears it's complex uh it's ambiguous um all the things that we sort of uh find challenging <laughs> about existing, right? Um, so I don't allow myself to try to sort of box myself in either. I try to allow my spiritual life and my religious perspectives and my philosophical perspectives to uh, sort of go with the grain of reality in that sense, um, to be complex, to be um, sort of nuanced and ambiguous. So for me, my identity uh, in that sense is just that, is complex and uh, sort of multiplicitous and uh in some sense a mystery to even myself <laughs> um yeah. as i go through my days Who so, isn't? Yeah. Uh, right <laughs> exactly so these days i consider myself you know I, I present myself as a sort of uh uu sufi buddhist um meaning that uh, i draw from the sufi tradition and from the sort of uh, profound insights of that lineage uh i draw uh from the buddhist tradition and the sort of excellent training that I've been able to gain access to in that space uh, with wonderful teachers uh, who I hold very close to my heart. Um, and then I find that the most natural expression for me, at least in the moment, is uh, through uh, the Unitarian Universalist community, where there is uh, an embrace of complexity and nuance and ambiguity and uh, the sort of uh, struggle of the sort of living cosmologies that we all sort of carry around in our heads. So. Yeah, so that's where I present myself. Um, you know, if any of those groups, you know, actually encountered my brain, I don't know if they would 
really want me to be claiming <laughs> at them, but I'm more than happy to, to uh, yeah. sort of give them credit at least in those spaces. Right, right. Well, uh, thank you for giving us a little bit more background to your perspective. I mean, for those of you listening, Jason and I met in a class on Theopoetics last year at Claremont School of Theology. Uh, we were studying uh, Whitehead's phrase, God as poet of the world. Um, but before we get into anything divine, I'm interested uh, in your definition of theopoetics and then coming from this Sufi Buddhist perspective, how you relate uh, Buddhist thought or philosophy to, to how you conceive of theopoetics. Mm. Yeah, well, I think uh, there are sort of broad lessons and specific lessons that you can learn from each of these traditions, right? So uh, the broad uh, sort of takeaway that I get from uh, each of these traditions in terms of uh, knowledge and sort of shaping your outlook is different from necessarily the sort of faith perspective that I would bring. So for example, from Buddhism, I learned to be very skeptical, um, to not <laughs> uh, take what appears to me in my head or in the world uh, for granted as uh, simply what it presents itself as. Um, everything is uh, complicated, everything has a background, everything is multiple. Um, and Buddhism, I think, uh, in a way that's unique among the traditions, embraces uh, that uh, that trend um, and really that sort of aspect of reality. Um, from the Sufi tradition, I also learn um, in terms of epistemology, in terms of knowledge, to take seriously uh, conceptual thought uh, and to take seriously the uh, role of human reason in understanding our experience, in understanding the world. Um, you know, this is a sort of the unique perspective, I think, that, that Islam as a whole has given to the world. Um, it gave us modernism, it gave us science, it gave us modern finance, <laughs> it gave mm -hmm. us modern agriculture. Um, you know, the role of reason and the idea that even divinity itself speaks to reason and speaks to us through reason uh, is a profound insight and a, and a profound value to the world. So I try to take those two things uh, very seriously. Um, in my work. Um, more interestingly, though, I think, honestly speaking, uh, in terms of spirituality, you know, I think, you know, there's a there's a book that exists that says, uh, without Buddha, I couldn't be a Christian, right? Um, and the idea being that the sort of insights that one gains from one tradition can help one to be a better practitioner of another. Um, and I find that the sort of insights of those two traditions when put together are very, very powerful, uh, and they allow you to express a sense of, uh, even amidst the skepticism and all of this that I talked about, a kind of faith and a kind of uh, secure self-awareness um, as a uh, valid and valuable contribution to the universe. Um, and I yeah. think those, those traditions speak to that in, in ways that are, you know, frankly majestic. And mm. if you allow yourself to be sort of absorbed by those perspectives, uh, beautiful things um, are able to happen in our lives. Mm. And so as you hold together the, the gift of the Sufi tradition and the Buddhist tradition and your naming of it just now, what what is the connection there for theopoetics and how do you employ that using that perspective right you're going to make me answer the question um, <laughs> um well this I is think, a theopoetics podcast you know right after all um well i think uh you know honestly you know i 
I, I don't want to say that there is one answer for that sort of thing. So in answering that, you know, obviously uh, I'm speaking for one person in one moment. Uh, but the way that I understand theopoetics really is uh, understanding the relationship between, uh, and I'm going to use a couple of technical terms here, aesthesis and theosis. Um, and so aesthesis really is this sort of poetic element um, in theopoetics for me. Um, and it's really the ground of Whitehead's uh, approach to reality, right? Is that we understand that all of reality is in some sense grounded in experience, mm -hmm. uh, that it's grounded in a kind of innate wisdom um, and a sense of uh, um, ultimately what amounts to a kind of compassion or a kind of uh, uh, peace uh, or peaceability uh, mm -hmm. that exists as sort of a ground layer of reality. Um, and that we form ourselves, we gather our being out of that, um, and that then we turn it back to the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we get it back into the world. And so that process of aesthesis, that process of feeling, of sensation, of uh, having a body being able to act in the world and, 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 and use our minds in relationship to our experience, all of that is sort of bound up in aesthesis. But then there's this remaining question of, okay, well, good enough, right? But we're in relation. We exist mm -hmm. fundamentally in relation. Mm -hmm. And that same set of concerns and questions that I have as an existing being, as a uh, sentient creature, also exist in the world. And according to process philosophy, which is sort of one of the major threads of theopoetics, um, really in fact is the world and so relating to that process in the world both in myself and in others and sort of through myself and through others and and shaping that relationship between this thesis and this sort of uh deeper layers of reality is really important um and i like this sort of language of theosis. Uh, Roland Favre talks about this a lot uh in his books um really the sense of transforming ourselves and allowing ourselves to uh, really resonate with those deeper harmonies that exist in reality and allow that uh, that sense of resonance to unfold in our lives as uh, a ground for action, a ground for speech, a ground for all of the aspects of our being. Um, I think that's really lovely. And so that theopoetics language is really exciting to me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it, yeah. it brings that whole sort of process of spiritual formation and uh, knowing about the world and, and relating to the world into conversation with each other in a kind of holistic way. It's mm. oh, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I've found Whitehead's framing um, in terms of aesthetic satisfaction as well as the, I mean, would theotical be the word? Uh, theosis, the element of theosis or apotheosis even, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, is is really a beautiful um, catalyst. But for those of us who uh, may be unfamiliar with, with those terms, yeah. really like it's a way to affirm uh, experience um, and to affirm that there is uh, a process that we all are uh, engaged in all the time um, of that, that has a sort of, um, I don't want to say divinization to it, but how would you talk about um, the theological component of theosis from a process perspective. Um, and what, what does that even mean uh, for those of us who are just more familiar with the term God? Right. So, uh, you know, God is a very 
one of the most complicated words you can use, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, so uh, bracketing that for just a second, um, uh -huh. I, would, I would say that the, uh, this sort of sense of, uh, of relation really is the sort of fundamental thing. Right, yeah. um, which is that we experience the world as having creativity in it, um, and in some sense as having come into being as passing away. Um, so there is this sense of creativity of an ongoing process that isn't just the same thing happening over and over and over again, but that it's actually a creative process. Um, and so it's that sense of creativity um, that I think is really at the core of kind of the question that we're talking about because that creativity also gives rise to us and in giving rise to us also gives rise to our meaning and the meaning that we carry and the identity that we form around that meaning um, the sense of identity the sense of perspective that we have so really at the root of it is this question of the relationship between personal meaning and the creativity that we find in the world mm. um, and uh you know there are different ways to conceptualize that, to talk about it, uh, even to sort of systematize our language around that, um, which is the sort of theological work, right? Yep. Um, so if we're if we're doing that work, if we're if we're engaged in 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 that kind of uh, inquiry, that kind of relationship building uh, with the cosmos as a whole, uh, you know, we find different language that we want to put on it at different times. And we find that we actually conceive of it differently at different times. Um, there are many areas of process, theology, even in Whitehead itself, where that creativity really is impersonal. Uh, it's part of just the sort of way things are, right? Um, things just are creative, things just do change. Um, but then there's also a sense in which there is a kind of character uh, to that creativity. Uh, we find patterns, we find things that look like ideas operating in nature. Um, and, you know, we certainly find mimes in nature. <laughs> right? um, so there, there is this character that seems to emerge in our, in our existence uh, that also uh, lends itself to this quality. Mm. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, we say there's no creator God, you know, that's a, one of the sort of standard philosophical mm -hmm. positions. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think there is a lot more nuance to that position than is often given. Um, okay. not, not just because historically uh, there is a sort of relationship to theistic traditions that exists in um, you know the Buddhist uh, history, mm -hmm. uh, but also because really what they're talking about is that there is no spot uh, in the sort of full cosmology that you could ever say that there would be something that isn't open, uh, that isn't uh, relational. Right. There is sure. no, um, there is no unmoved mover. There is no like ultimate like will uh, up there or, saying like or causation. Yeah. Or yeah. causation. Exactly. Yeah. There's no yeah. there's no thing there. Right. Like there's mm -hmm. no hard spot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know there are in the tradition um, also moments uh, of mythologizing and of uh, philosophical expression that point very much to something like what we call God in process theology, mm. um, sort of ultimate re relationality, this ultimate creativity, this mm. ultimate uh, uh, 
sort of compassion, a sort of self-existing compassion mm-hmm. in, the, in the cosmos. And there it gets talked about like as the sort of primordial Buddha or this, you know, um, you sure. know the Buddha is the highest, best thing, right? So therefore, this is the primordial Buddha, right? Just like yeah. in Christian tradition, right? You know, yeah. God is the highest and best thing. So therefore, this is God, right? Yeah. Um, you know, th- those different ways of languaging are all fine by me, as long as mm. we're actually agreeing that we're talking about that sort of same thing. Sure, sure. Well, I think that one of the one of the myths that gets tossed around about Buddhism is, uh, especially as contrasted with something like Christianity, is that in Christianity the ultimate is relational, really is personal uh, connection uh, or mm-hmm. connectivity, and in the Buddhist tradition the ultimate really is sort of negation or uh, a sort of uh, apophasis in the sense of this like. Um, the, there's an inherent nothingness at the heart of Buddhism. So could you deconstruct that for us? I think what you're distilling sounds like a, like a lot more relational perspective on Buddhism, and I'd love for you to just maybe clarify that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do speak out of the sort of Vajrayana tradition, uh, much more than the Mahayana tradition, which is more familiar to folks. And I do think that um, the way the Mahayana talks about emptiness frequently does sort of lend itself to this sort of uh, nihilistic interpretation. Uh, right. It's really nothingness. Um and, and here is where sort of Buddhism actually does some very phil- subtle philosophical work. Um, essentially, it says that ontology is the wrong way to approach these questions. Um, ontology just can't work uh, because ultimately when you get out beyond the sort of primitive cosmology of our experience, um, uh, that causation itself becomes a very complicated <laughs> way of understanding reality. Um, and uh, that reality is ultimately uh, sort of co-arising, that everything in it sort of has its place, but also is fundamentally relational, um, that there is no sort of absolute essence to anything. Mm. And, this, and this is where I think that the, uh, the sort of insights of Buddhism can actually be fruitful to the monotheistic traditions, um, which is to say that uh, that also probably would apply to anything that you would call ultimate, right? That it would still, uh, insofar as we're talking about it as an actuality, uh, rather than just as an abstraction, right? It, it has to be open. It has to be relational, um, and that's not to say in necessarily in the same sense as like open theology or, or you know that kind of sure. thing. Uh, although maybe not entirely unrelated. I don't know. I'm not an expert right. in those areas, <laughs> but um, but you know that the, the, is the sense of of openness of of this sort of self existing primordial compassion of reality, mm-hmm. and that that the sort of encounter of uh of reality is is a is the the provocation for the buddha nature itself and so the buddha nature in encountering itself at the sort of primordial level uh sort of takes joy in discovering yeah. itself right. and and gives rise to reality and and that language to me sounds a lot like what sufis are describing when they talk about the sort of emanationist god and this kind of thing right uh, it sounds a lot like the platonists uh and the platonic tradition as well uh and there's historical reasons too you know these traditions have lived near each other for a very long time <laughs> so, right <laughs> you know right. um you know, things that, that live near each other start to speak the same language after Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, which which hits at one of the points that we wanted to talk about, which is ontology versus axiology. Uh, and, and both of us sort of working with down in and through the Whiteheadian tradition, 
there's a lot that, I mean, I, I hope that some of you who are semi-familiar with the lexicon of Whitehead's terms are starting to hear there's a reason that Christians and Buddhists and Jewish people and all sorts of traditions can uh, can use Whiteheadian um, categories and things like that in order to to do their philosophy. So, so for you then, as you're thinking with Whitehead um, in the stream that we've already begun to explore here, uh, how do you frame up that conversation? If it's not about ontology, where are you moving in your thought? Yeah, well, you know, um, there is a sort of, uh, uh, how to say, uh, there's a fellow who writes, uh, John Leslie. Um, he's a Canadian philosopher, um, quite talented. Um, and, I would say he's kind of radical um, in his work to sort of deontologize uh, uh, the traditions. Um, and I say the traditions because he's sort of open-ended in the way that process philosophy is, and he's heavily influenced by process philosophy. But uh, the idea is that he's speaking past the traditions to sort of these deeper questions of, uh, you know, not just the specific ontologies, because as soon as you start talking specific ontologies within the specific traditions, you know, you run into kind of uh, conflict uh, because, you know, using the ways that we think about the world, sometimes two things can't coexist at the same time, right? Um, so there, there are ontological problems. But one of the things that process philosophy says is ontology is, is, a, is a question that comes late to the game. Right, um, and that underneath ontology is this sort of more primordial value structure, um, and John Leslie talks about it as the sort of uh, will or love, uh, you know, will in the sort of classical Christian tradition, not necessarily like the will of God or something like this, but as the sort of uh, organ that exists within reality that sort of emanates this compassion um, as something right. like a Buddha, like a Buddha nature, you know, right. that exists in reality itself, and. The Platonic tradition actually holds this uh, very tightly, um, and it's not a it's not a coincidence that the Christian traditions that have been influenced by Platonism do this. The, you know, the Sufi traditions influenced by Platonism do this. Um, there's a shared vocabulary here that, in some sense, comes out of Plato, but also pre-exists Plato, um, of this sort of fundamental uh, value structure. And Buddhism actually talks in these terms when it abandons ontology, uh, which it does right from the start, although it takes several hundred years for it to figure out how to do this philosophically, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in principle, it does this right from the start, which is why it sort of acts like a, almost like an acid <laughs> on philosophy yeah. in some ways, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, so it has this effect of trying to deontologize, to move away from ontologies, to to defixate uh, our sense of reality, right? And mm. to, to allow us to be open to uh, what is experientially, you know, ecstasy, wonder, bliss, joy, all of these sort of transcendental uh, affects. Sure. And mm -hmm. so if we can talk about that fundamental value structure, we open ourselves up to the full range of our experience. Whereas if we're talking ontology and we're just talking about what is, um, there's a certain flatness to it uh, that doesn't really get us to these spaces. And then we have to constantly figure out how to get out of ontology into these sort of more sort of right. spaces and right. we develop metaphysics and <clears throat> this and that and the other thing right and but if you start with value structures if you start with value as whitehead ultimately kind of does even though he uses ontological language yeah uh if you if you make that shift uh if you follow over into value theory 
um, then suddenly a lot of problems go away and a lot of uh, the sort of philosophical problems that we've had in, in history actually start to sort of dissolve. Um, and we see that what Buddhism was doing is actually not that different from this, uh, which is to uh, uh, liberate our experience mm. um, and to do so through uh, the liberation of concepts. Mm. Mm. Liberation all the way down. Liberation all the way down. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I think for me, one of the the uh, initial gates that opened when I encountered Whitehead was his value theory. And it was so alluring for me to reconceptualize existence, not only in terms of experience, but in terms of the experience of beauty, yes. uh, that widest value for him, you know? And so I love that, that shift because Whitehead, for, for me, in my reading of him, uh, via like Faber and Keller is is this sort of um, inherently non-dual cosmology, you know, like there, there's he's working with the rationalism of the Enlightenment and transcending it, you know, he's he's working with this sort of emphasis on value and um, but it's mediated through the subjective experience, you know, of of uh, the, the, the scheme as a whole. And so he's always sort of like walking that line. Uh, but, but so he's doing ontology through axiology, you know, in a sense, like, uh, but, but not really, you know, it's like always this, uh, this hairball. Uh, but, but the cool thing I think that you're, that you're highlighting here, uh, it's really important uh, to name is that ontology as a starting place seems to be misguided. Uh, mm -hmm. And that value, it doesn't mean that you can't do ontology. It doesn't mean that you can't start there. It means that unless it's brought into some sort of critical harmony with axiology, which is just another way to say values, um, then we, we sort of get off on the wrong foot. Is that is that a sort of correct hearing of what you're saying? Or Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's sort of a, you know, this is one of the sort of, uh, how to say, fun challenges of, of this kind of thinking, which is that, you know, humans uh, have this strong instinct for ontology, right? Um, you know, we're, we're tool-wielding beings. We look to see what a thing is yeah. and pick it up, grasp it. This is what Heidegger tells us, right? Yeah. We want to pick it up. We want to grasp it. We want to say, this is what this thing is, right? right? But nothing has an essence in that sense, right? Sure. Not really, not really. Uh, you know, it may demonstrate one temporarily, um, yep. and, you know, but this emphasis, and this is why I love what process does with temporality. It's very similar to the sense of Buddhist impermanence, mm. uh, which is that a thing doesn't display an essence, you know, even, even the Islamic tradition, even Sufis say, you know, uh, a, a thing exists in poverty, um, you mm. know, it owes its being to the sort of effulgence of the whole sort of mm. cosmic process, right? It right. doesn't have it intrinsically and it doesn't get to keep it forever. Mm. It has to give it back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So we have to give our essence back. And if we are sort of looking for a way to ground ethics, that's a really good place to start. And I think yeah. it does a lot more work than ontology does. Mm. Um, you know, we, 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 Ultimately, in some sense, we're giving our essence back. Our essence is always existing in relation. Um, we always have to give ourselves away. And that, that process of perpetual decentering really is the gift of the cosmos itself, because that's what the cosmos has been doing from the start. It's been giving itself over to the experience of whatever emerges within it, um, yeah. which is... Uh, when you start to see cosmology as a gift um, in that sense, and not just as a given, um, 
that's uh, that's a huge transformation. Mm. Um, and that's where I think, you know, sure, height are great, you know, et cetera. But we also need to go farther. Um, we need to take uh, reality as uh, not just as a given, but as a gift. And we need to figure out how to decenter ourselves in that way. And all of these traditions speak to this core responsibility. That's actually the responsibility. That's how we participate in creation. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, that's the call. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, what White Health calls the, the ultimate sort of lure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is, to, is to give ourselves over to the initial aim of the cosmos, which is yeah. gifting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, it's it's so alluring. And so for a moment, let's talk cosmology. I mean, we uh, I, I've been you've caught me here for an hour break from writing my dissertation. So oh. I'm using a lot of of Carlo Rovelli. Uh, oh, yeah. The Italian uh, theoretical physicist. But also uh, we, we had we had, you know, in our email said that we might want to talk something around this. So like what? Putting, putting what you just framed up in a cosmological context, what, what's exciting you these days about, about the field of cosmology and our, what are we discovering that you're wanting to bring into a sort of harmony with your own thought? And yeah, just go down that path for a little bit. Yeah. Well, um, so there's a few things that excite me about contemporary cosmology. Um, you know, uh, for folks who, who aren't uh, sort of reading uh, some of the work that's being done right now, um, particularly um, on questions of sort of cosmic formation, like genuine real cosmology coming out of MIT, Oxford, Cambridge. Uh, like there's some absolutely stunning uh, work that's being done in a, from a scientific perspective. Mm. And uh, one of the things that's amazing about it is that uh, it has uh, sort of like the Whiteheadian tradition, kind of like the Deleuzian tradition, this real strong emphasis on multiplicity. Um, and uh, that there are, in fact, um, not just, you know, many solar systems or many worlds or many galaxies, but there are many universes and that there are layers of multiplicities. You know, uh, Techmark spends a lot of time talking about these layers of multiplicities. Um, that it, it looks like the cosmos finds every opportunity it can to multiply itself, to increase, to be multiple. And it tries to fulfill those potentialities, um, that's, that's remarkable. And it kind of gives me chills in a way, because not only yeah. does it mean we're like way, 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 way tinier than we ever thought we were, <laughs> sure. you know, um, yeah. you know the sort of like just unbelievable, like bottomless humility that's required to respond to something like that. Right. Um, but also beyond that, there is the sense of, of effulgence, of increase, of growth and, um, a sort of just transcendentally baroque complexity um, that, that is, uh, um, you know, the, the world, you know, as world is is wilderness. Um, you know, there's just this wildness and this openness and this multiplicity. And I find that startling and I find it uh, awesome uh, in that sort of real sense of awesome, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's very exciting. And then when I sort of think about it in terms of the ways that they are understanding this. Uh, there's, there's a real sense that uh, a causal mechanisms have a role to play. And that's not to say that there's some sort of supernatural thing that they're talking about, but they, but they are getting beyond just sort of mere causality as a, as a way of talking about the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, into something more nuanced and more sophisticated, more complex. Um, 
that's really fascinating. And then you get someone like Rovelli, who's really trying to talk about how does that work? How does the microcosm and the macrocosm relate to each other? Mm-hmm. You know, and so for Rovelli, you know, like so many of the sort of 20th century thinkers, like the answer seems to be to take time seriously um, to take process seriously to mm-hmm. look at a world that exists not just in transformation but as transformation you know as multiplicity as complexification as change um, which first of all for someone like me that gives me hope um, because it means if all of that can go on then I can change I can do my business and, you know yeah. I can yeah. I can to the world you know who, who am I to be different in that sense but um, also, like the specifics of the way that Ravelli and some of these folks talk, um, you know, it actually looks like there is this kind of fundamental value layer, um, which is about uh, production. It is about yeah. sort of uh, increase. It is about um, a sort of radical openness and that that value structure and here we're sending value theory out into realms that start to sound ontological but really that there is this sort of fundamental openness and and uh, and sort of uh, really uh, sort of effulgent basis uh, uh, for reality at its ground level so it's, it's like full emptiness, this empty fullness uh, that just mm-hmm. sort of underlies all of reality. And the result is this magnificent garden of universes, yeah. um, you know, which sounds like Buddhist cosmology. It sounds like many worlds the- theologies. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like, you know, in some ways it sounds like Mormonism, you know, we have this like, you know, open multiplicity of worlds uh, upon worlds upon worlds and sure. all of this experience, which means that, you know, from a process perspective, all of that potentiality is still exists within me, myself. I can become worlds, you know, I can become, um, you know, these, the, these, open realities for other beings, uh, depending on the ways that I engage with them and with Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in our conversation, you know, we're worlds for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. we we explore that with a sense of awe and wonder and and, uh, appreciation for complexity and and for subtlety. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just a really magnificent way to be in the world. And here it is sort of like correlating with our cosmologies. It seems Mm -hmm. like the universe itself calls us to that same kind of sensibility. Right. Um, that's that's stunning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. I mean, I think what like what Ravelli is trying to do with loop theory and bringing together the two greatest discoveries of the 20th century in terms of general relativity and quantum mechanics. Uh, other people are doing this with string theory, and, um, and I just think, yeah, it, it is it is an endlessly fascinating time to be doing this kind of work. And I'm I'm no cosmologist. Uh, in the sense that they are in any way, shape, or form. But but it's fun to observe them doing it and to try to integrate it philosophically in a sort of naturalism or, you know, uh, using using Whitehead to to build a a worldview that that gives us, like you said, this idea of like, wow, we should have this sort of huge humility uh, and also realize the wonder and the infinite that is within us at the same time, you know? Like, it's it's this contrast of our smallness and... Uh, the world that we are, you know, like in the phrase that you use. And so um, it's a fascinating time to be observing this, like I said, but 
I'm curious for you, for those of us who aren't as familiar with uh, what multiplicity is and what is what uh, Ravelli is doing with time, how would you talk about um, multiplicity in terms of dimensions or worlds? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like, just so people can sort of conceive of the idea, and then what is the implication of that for being in this spatiotemporal reality that we are sharing mm-hmm. at this moment? Yeah, so, so some light, easy questions. Um, yeah, just, just <laughs> softballs, just toss them out. <laughs> um, so the nature of reality and uh, what that means for us. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what's, what, say, like, what's, what's multiplicity? I mean, is it, is it things happening in different dimensions? Is it, uh, is it a way to talk about uh, a wider concept? Is it, is it a mini world? Like, like, how would you just, like, try to say, explain it to somebody who's not super familiar? Right. Well, in, you know, in the traditions that we inherit, uh, particularly in some of the folk traditions, uh, there is a propensity, and and Plato also does this, uh, uh, there's a propensity to think about reality as sort of one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's ultimately one. It's ultimately um, unified. Um, And that's not quite the same thing as talking about it being whole, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's, there's unity and then there's wholeness. Um, and what we talk about when we talk about multiplicity is to just simply abandon the assumption of, of oneness uh, in, the, in, in, in the sense that, uh, that everything that comes to be comes together out of other things, plural. Uh, nothing comes to be out of just one thing. Uh, even if that's ourself, we're different from ourself five minutes ago, right? Yeah. So, um, so no, nothing, nothing exists in that kind of oneness. Um, but there is a more primordial oneness, and and uh, this is what I think the Sufis really try to get to, which is yes, you can talk about sort of God as one, as being the sort of ultimate sort of grounding source that we've been mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this, there's this, there's this more nuanced sense in which we're talking about wholeness, and wholeness doesn't pre-exist because then it's just unity, right? Wholeness is an emergent quality. Uh, wholeness comes out of the sort of uh, relations and the ways that different things relate to each other. I myself am a wholeness, but I'm not one thing, right? I have right. multiple identities. I'm made of multiple stuffs, organized mm-hmm. into other multiple things. Um, you know, I, I exist as a, as a sort of complex uh, interiority um, and a complex exterior. And so uh, the only place where it all kind of comes together is in the moment of my sort of appreciation of my existence in that exact moment. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, where wholeness can be found. It's found in that moment. It's not found in the, uh, in the sort of complex exteriorities. It's not found in the complex interiorities. Mm-hmm. But those realities, that multiplicity is itself the ground for that unification that happens in my experience. Mm-hmm. So, so everything is multiple, everything is compound, everything has multiple identities, participates in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Just to say that it's sort of uh, the, the cosmos, every part of the cosmos has this sort of living process going on. Mm-hmm. And then if we talk about wholeness, uh, then we're talking about something that is actually a value pattern rather than trying to fixate these fundamental layers in terms mm. of an ontology. 
epistemology. Hmm. And so, um, you know, Rovelli's work on temporality and understanding temporality uh, is particularly interesting because he also gives us this concept of blurring, where we have like between the multiplicity and the sort of wholeness that we have, we experience a sort of a layer of uh, intelligible reality that seems to speak to us in our position as subjects. Mm-hmm. And um, that that is actually not the ultimate reality because reality is, is, is multiplicitous, it's complex, mm-hmm. and, and we don't see everything, we don't understand everything, we don't mm-hmm. experience everything. Mm-hmm. But insofar as it comes to us, it sort of uh, uh, takes on a gentler tone, as it were, to mm-hmm. allow us to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, and it blurs uh, out uh, its own noise in order to speak to us. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's a really beautiful way of understanding reality you know and even even at the layer of fundamental cosmology you know these sort of unities that we see or things that appear to be unities um that appear to be singular his cosmology are actually just perspectively so right they're not fundamentally so and that's that's an emergent perception that comes out of the universe giving it to us uh, giving itself to us in Mm -hmm. a particular way Mm -hmm. um and so then we have to ask, well, you know, what is then the way that I'm going to give myself back to this universe? <laughs> right, know? right. Um, right. It, you know, at every level, you know, I am, I am on the receiving end of a gift. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then how do, I, how, do I, how do I accept that gift in the right yeah. way? But then also how do I give back and propagate that gifting, um, mm-hmm. that sort of fundamental uh decentering of yeah. my own perspective recognizing that my perspective is just that it's only mine right um, it's only ever mine right I, I love that i mean in ter- especially in terms of thinking of multiplicity in terms of uh it's really tough to conceive of given my little extension you know my my little uh, subjective experience of that which is around me I think what Ravelli is sort of freeing us up to do is to allow that to be and not to universalize mm-hmm. it, but to think about um, the events of deep space or different, different uh, occasions or happenings or occurrences that are, that are happening out there, be that, um, and not need them to somehow share the same momentary extension that we experience. You know what I mean? And I think that's another way to sort of talk about the complexity of, of things on a macro scale. Yeah. Um, well, and this is something that I think both Whitehead and Mobelli give us, which is this ability to be humble in the face of cosmology. Yes. Um, because cosmology is a like, a, I mean, it's, you know, it's way beyond our scale. You know, yeah. we do exist in these sort of like, you know, finite dimensional, you know, creatures. Mm-hmm. But, but in some sense, that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's just what we're supposed to be, because that's who we are and that's where yeah. we are. And right. and so, but what they both tell us is that uh that we're not just the sum of our pasts, right? That there is this creativity in play and that there is something about being human. It's also the level at which human intelligence emerges, yeah. uh, at which uh human experience emerges. And you know, that's that's a fascinating spot to be in, <laughs> you know, if you're talking about it as a, as a location, as a situation, right? Um, that's fascinating. And Whitehead and Ravelli both emphasize, and in some ways this is, is the same gesture of moving past being into the sort of wider categorical framework of allowing us to experience the fullness of our existence, the fullness of our being 
as an appropriate response to what we're given. Um, you know, I mean, at the very least, it evolved in a way that allows us to, you know, <laughs> exist right. in the world, right? Right, at um, the very but, least, yeah. But, but even more than that, you know, that there is value to the ways that we approach it. There is value to poetic sensibilities. There is mm-hmm. value to embodied sensibilities. Um, and this is the sort of other edge of theopoetics, which I love, which is to say that there's more than just language as a way to express divinity mm. or to express reality. You know, um, the arts, dance, um, mm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. poetry, poetics, um, even just abstract color uh, mm-hmm. can serve mm-hmm. as ways to carry our meaning back out into the world because mm. that's that's the sort of not only are we giving the gift of ourselves back into the world, but we're adding to it, right? We're adding another layer of meaning. We're adding another layer of creativity into existence. There are things in the world that would not exist without us. You know, yeah. we know, you know, a bear can appreciate a sunset um, in a full on, you know, aesthetic experience, just the same way that we can, but it doesn't make a painting about it and it doesn't share it in its community. Sure. Um, and so, you know, there's something specific about about being human that both Rovelli and Whitehead and even Einstein and, you know, 20th century, early 20th mm-hmm. century physicists mm-hmm. really emphasized, which is that, you know, when we step outside of uh, the sort of purely ontological and actually raise the question of meaning, mm. um, which is the motivation for Rovelli's work, we've got these two contradictory theories, we need to figure out what it means to have them mm-hmm. both in play, right? Mm-hmm. Is that everything whenever it has its experience it adds meaning in its own way but then it expresses that back into the world um and so i i like the 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 sort of gesture that's happening in both their works uh ultimately for me it's a little too humanist at the end of the day because i think uh you know humanism has has some uh problems uh aporias as we say in the philosophical language um but uh and, and we live with those all, all the time. But that humanist gesture is a really good one because it opens us up to understanding that uh, one particular way of understanding will never capture the multiplicity of the world. Right, right. Um, and that being said, then, it, it becomes difficult to express uh, this beyondness. Uh, and so what you were alluding to there in some of the poetic language and the aesthetic sensibility of color and, and dance and some of the arts, like, you, you and I have talked a little bit about you wanting to talk about theopoetics as theosemiotics. Mm-hmm. So for you, the symbology of that, could you first maybe just say, hey, this is what semiotics is for those who don't know, <laughs> and then talk about what you mean uh, in terms of the theopoetic lens for, um, for mm-hmm. our work? So, well, uh, in terms of semiotics, you know, uh, there's a couple of different sort of ways of talking about semiotics. So just to clarify, when I use the term, I'm really drawing on the, on the tradition of Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, not so much on the European semiology tradition. Uh, semiology draws on Saussure, and it really has a sort of sort of it's really a flat ontology of signs and of sign making mm-hmm. um, as a process in the world uh, and it tends to be very very humanist in its perspective it's really about language i mean so sort of was himself a linguist at the end of the day right that's what mm-hmm. this sort of fundamental concern um but for me uh, I like uh, Persian semiotics because it opens out in the way that we've just been talking about uh, Rovelli and Einstein and Whitehead opening out, which is that it recognizes that there are more than one sort of form of sign making. There's one more than one way of relating to uh, information and knowledge and these kinds of things. Uh, what's particularly interesting is that that 
strain of thought uh, has over the last hundred years developed a uh, really sophisticated uh, school of thinking called biosemiotics, um, which, you know, we talk about Whitehead as philosophy of organism. Well, organism in the 21st century really means biosemiotics. Um, and there's some uh, really wonderful literature about biosemiotics. I encourage everybody to go check it out. It's awesome. Um, uh, interestingly, it's sort of a combination of uh, uh, American sort of Persian lines of thought and sort of Soviet thinking out of Moscow and Tartu. Um, so it's a really interesting cultural phenomenon just by itself. Hmm. But, um, but uh, biosemiotics argues that reality itself has these kinds of qualities that uh, exist in signs, right? So sign making uh, really is about sort of uh, differences that exist in relations. So when we're speaking language, what we're actually doing is, is tossing patterns of difference back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that those patterns of difference are uh, built on a structure that exists sort of all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the fundamental questions of, of this sort of way of thinking is how far down does semiosis go? Right. Uh, you know, can you talk about the semiotics of particles? Can you talk about, you know, the semiotics of fundamental layers of existence? Um, some people are you yes, some people are you no. Interestingly, in uh, the cosmological space, there's a debate about this, uh, and that exists even within the philosophical traditions, uh, you know, going back in time. You know, how far down does sign making go? Is reality fundamentally codal? Uh, is it is it like language? Um, mm -hmm. is it, uh, is it, uh, it, it, does it carry knowledge? Does it provide information? Um, and this sort of these kinds of questions uh, sort of pervade 21st century thought coming out of postmodernism, post-humanist ways of thinking uh, with biology and uh, informatics sort of merging into this biosemiotics, right? So if we're talking about philosophy of organism and we're talking about Whitehead as a sort of major thread for what we mean in theopoetics, the sort of transformations that have happened over the last 150 years give us an opportunity to talk about theopoetics in a very particular and precise way as theosemiotics, meaning that we can understand the sort of semiotic processes of affect and meaning and sign making um, as existing in the world. We can take seriously the language of dolphins and the language of whales, for example. Uh, we can look at the genetic code and understand it as a sort of codal, you know, control mechanism um, on yeah. processes. Uh, but we can also understand, uh, you know, the semiotics of culture um, as part of that same continuum. Um, and uh, the, the sort of semiotic processes of, of sharing ourselves out into the world, the signs that we make, the culture mm -hmm. that we make, the decisions that we make, mm -hmm. as these patterns of difference. Mm -hmm. And so uh, so what I want to do in understanding theopoetics as theosemiotics is in part to understand these structures of meaning and to understand what it is about reality that sort of gives itself to meaning. Um, and how does that meaning, again, relate to sort of the creative processes that seem to be fundamental to reality? So it's a cosmological question, but mm. it's also a social question. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's exactly the gesture that Whitehead makes. So I feel like I'm in good company. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Gesture, right. right? So, so for, for you then, as you're appropriating the sort of biosemiotic lens and, and some of the discoveries that are going on in that field, and you're wanting to sort of embrace this process perspective or theopoetic perspective in which um, you're working with the differentiation of these symbols. 
how do you bring that together with the relationality of process, meaning not just the differentiation, but the connectivity of it? Um, mm -hmm. And what does that mean for you to do that as, as somebody who practices theopoetics? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's a couple layers to your question. Um, so the first thing is uh, sort of how does semiotics sort of open back out into theopoetics really is, I think, sort of ask, how you're asking. If, I, uh, if I'm that specific about structures of meaning and things like that, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in some sense you're sort of asking, well, you're almost evolving into an ontology. How do you get back out <laughs> into value theory? Um, that's a really good question and a, and a very challenging one. Um, and so the, this is where the sort of question becomes really about sort of fundamental cosmology, right? Mm -hmm. How, how can, uh, something, uh, like structured meaning, uh, mm -hmm. appear as creativity appear as the world. Um, and this is one of the things that I like about Peirce's way of handling, uh, signs actually, um, and it's something that uh, Bookler and some of the other sort of process philosophers have, have taken seriously as well, which is to understand that <clears throat> when we make a sign, we aren't making a thing, right? When I say a word, I'm not saying a word. I'm engaging in a process. That sign exists as an event. And understanding it as an event rather than as a thing actually makes it a totally different scenario, right? Because if I'm thinking about it as a thing, I want to dissect it, I want to understand it, I want to understand what it's made of, I want to analyze the, you know, the mm -hmm. sound waves and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I get end up with a very sort of flat model of what culture is, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I have a much harder time understanding like sign making between microbes, for example, <laughs> right? Um, right? How do they relate to each other? Well, it just looks like signal but then it's just it becomes like clockwork stuff like early modern stuff and it just it doesn't quite hold together um what i want from the sort of semiotics is an understanding of meaning right and understanding all those structures and everything that i'm trying to understand is about how meaning emerges in the moment yeah um and then when it's emerging in the moment then understanding the context in which it emerges mm. right it's mm -hmm. that it's it it because it only emerges in context so it is necessarily relational it exists as a relation but it also exists in relation um, yeah. so it finds its meaning from reference it finds its meaning from uh from a relationship to its exteriority mm. but it also carries its meaning by relationship to its own interiority and it also adds opportunity and nuance and, and uh, subtlety through its application, through its existing as an event in the world. Mm. So when I speak, I'm not just throwing information out, right? I'm actually mm -hmm. communicating, I'm relating. Right. Um, and uh, um, so if we're understanding sort of the eventhood as the sort of fundamental phenomenon that we're trying to analyze in yep. process thought, mm -hmm. uh, then the transformation becomes really easily, uh, comes really easily as long as we're not trying to sort of collapse back into an ontology again. Right, right. Oh, I think that's beautifully put. Um, and yeah, it, it strikes me as, an, as yet another example of what Whitehead does with the philosophical problem of the one and the many, is that every unification is another diversification. So there, there's like this in speaking and communicating and sharing and in language as a house for meaning, we are bringing together something to that's compressing and making a new event. But, but that even the, especially the semiological sort of reality here is that uh, the meaning making of the linguistic event is one in which um, 
we are making meaning by differentiation in a sense. Mm -hmm. But that's another unification that then becomes, you know what I mean? Another, another string in the long history of differential meaning making. So, I mean, now we're going to get into infinity, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So anyways, I mean, thanks for clarifying that. I think that's really a cool way to think about theopoetics in a way that we haven't really talked about here on the podcast. So, so for you, I mean, so where is that leading you in your own thought mm. um, as you, as you're doing your work and I don't know where you're at in your program, but, but where is that taking you? Yeah, so I think uh, it takes me in a couple of directions. Um, so on the one hand, uh, it takes me sort of in post, what we would call post-humanistic directions. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, uh, it would take us in, to use another word, apologize, uh, post-phenomenological directions. Okay. Uh, so when we talk about Heidegger and we talk about sort of 20th century philosophy, there's a real strong emphasis on phenomenology, uh, which is this sort of question of how do things come to appear in our field of experience, right? How do they come to exist in that field of experience? And there's this emphasis on experience. Um, but as we've sort of analyzed over the last 150 years or so of some pretty good philosophy, um, we realized that, uh, you know, there are problems. So for example, Nietzsche, by historicizing history, um, actually ends up with the death of God, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have the death of the subject. We have the death of the author. We hear these phrases sort of coming out of the sort of whole sort of post-Nietzschean, post-modern discourse. Mm -hmm. All of that, when you put it together, and we talk about a shift away from ontology, we're talking really about the death of being um, as, as a fundamental category. Um, and that's a, that's a startling moment to find ourselves in. As a substantive category, too. As a substantive right, category, right. exactly, exactly. And then we talk about, you know, I mean, our being itself is at risk, right? Insofar as we have being, it's at risk in the Anthropocene and all of this kind of stuff, right? So, you know, I mean, in a yeah. really fundamental way, like, you know, being is at risk in, in everything that we're doing. So, yeah. you know, phenomenology has been about the being of things um, in our field of experience, um, and treating our field of experience in some ways, and this gets very philosophically complicated, and I apologize uh, to some folks who are going to be offended by me saying this, but almost as if our experience was a kind of container uh, for things that appear within it. Um, and, but, if there, but if there is no being there, if that thing is an emergent property, if it's in relation, if it's contextual, yep. uh, in, in the context of this death of being, right, then we really have to talk about a kind of post-phenomenology. We have to talk about something that's more fundamentally relational, that decenters our own experience as a sort of fundamental sort of structuring principle of phenomenological experience. Right. Um, so, uh, so that's one implication. Um, what does that mean in technical terms? Well, it means, for example, in uh, Adventures of Ideas, Whitehead spends time differentiating between uh, the emergence of religion and the emergence of technology. Sort of wants to exclude sort of technical conversations, the emergence of technology from the conversation about religion. Um, Post phenomenology says, well, can you really do that? Because what you've done is you've taken humanist, uh, a humanist model of experience and then you've centered that as the model of experience and you said human experience is a thing. But is that really what's at play? 
um, in the history of religions. Um, well, we certainly have, you know, just to pick one example, the Christians developed this big organs, right? Um, like the musical instrument, that's a, mm. that's a piece of technology and it's been fundamental for how Christianity has communicated itself over time. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, you can f come up with examples from all sorts of traditions. The Buddhists come up with, you know, uh, wind-powered prayer wheels and, and, you know, these kinds of things. So traditions sure. are, are, are actually exploiting the full range of human phenomenological experience, even beyond just the models of phenomenology. So that's, that's one piece. But in this post-humanistic direction, which, to be honest, is more exciting to me, um, and uh, is really uh, recognizing in this sort of way that biosemiotics indicates to us that the world is alive with intelligence and um, explicit meaning and information, and that other creatures have knowledge based on other forms of experience, um, and that we may even be, in the near future, be sort of working to transform the nature of our own experience, both bodily and cognitively, um, but also <clears throat> in terms of the sort of semiotic structures that we use to organize our society. I mean, mm. social media alone would be a key example of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then also the sort of technological transformations of the body, recognizing also that there's other forms of intelligence in the world, that dolphins are intelligent creatures, that whales are intelligent creatures, that, you know, microbes can hunt in packs that mimic the dynamics of wolf packs. Um, you know, we, we see these, like, startling moments mm, of, mm -hmm. of emergent intelligence, of emergent mm. coordination, of emergent mm -hmm. understanding that exists outside just the mere human context. Mm -hmm. um, and that the world itself has the, this sort of propensity to uh, intelligence. Um, if, even if you don't want to call it cognition or, you know, if you're, you want to be more conservative on that front, mm. uh, you know, we know Whitehead is a radical on this front, right? He's a pan-experientialist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm sympathetic to Whitehead's argument because kind of everywhere we look, we see semiotic structures. We see these value structures in play. We see them right. organizing themselves in sort of autopoetic ways. Yeah. Uh, so I want to move in that post-humanistic direction mm. as well. And this is why, you know, and right now, in this moment, that implies things about biosemiotics and, and right. even cybernetics and, and these kinds of conversations that are sometimes excluded from theopoetics, but which might not be excluded from a theosemiotics uh, if we change mm. that language. Mm, mm, cool. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think some of the implications of, of what you're naming here in this post-humanist and um, uh, milieu, if you will, is basically that, you know, what starts to show itself if you do go toward a pan-experientialism and, and your sympathy there, like, is a very ecological reframing yes. of all of this. Uh, and part of that ecology um, is relationality, is novelty and creativity, uh, which which is a way to affirm um, process. You know, and so so this this move is one. I mean, I love the decentering, you know, of the anthropocentrism of of the era that we're we're coming out of right now, because it not only places human beings back in nature, back into that semiological process, but also it it begins to expand. I mean, I I think it should at least start to build compassion uh, in people for nature, you know, not just for one another, um, for other humans, but but for those other intelligences that you named for uh, the natural world. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful return, I think. But like you said, there are these sort of repercussions in the way that we conceptualize 
our person, you know, our mm -hmm. soul and, and things like that. Like, what do we mean by that? Uh, but, but I think the direction that we're heading here is, is really uh, a wonderful uh, harmony. Uh, so, well, and isn't it, wouldn't yeah. it be a thrilling thing to be able to talk to, you know, I mean, we can, we can talk to other animals, right? We can have conversations with Coco, uh, need you rest in peace, you know, we can talk, we can talk to parrots, we can talk to these creatures, and we know that some of them have ritual behaviors, you know, uh, chimpanzees and these kinds of things. Wouldn't it be lovely uh, to be able to have uh, sort of spiritual conversations uh, with other beings you know what would it mean to talk about that and doesn't that you know if we're talking to another primate mm -hmm. you know um, we know neanderthals another type of human that existed right they mm. had ritual behavior they had religion um you know what what would it mean to have that conversation and how does it shift us mm. you know so i like this uh, in, in this direction I, I find it very compelling because i, I want to know what the spiritual experience of a crow is um you know i find that intrinsically fascinating um yeah. in part because i have this ecological perspective but also because i want to learn more about what it means to be me um, mm -hmm. you know, in a world that produces both crow intelligence and my intelligence, yeah. you know, it, it means something different for me to be me than if it's just a world that is like merely right. humanist and just me. Right. Right. So I, I yeah. want to embrace that alienation of, of the other and find mm -hmm. out more about myself that way. And so I think there's this relational impulse at work in the ecological thing that is supported by the kinds of frameworks that we're talking about. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think we see this. And a lot of the sort of mystic naturalism, um, especially within the Christian tradition too. I mean, St. Francis. Absolutely. Every backyard has a fountain with him talking to a bird, right? You know, there's, there's right. that going on. But well, and no in the Buddhist tradition, you know, you have Shakar, who is a vegetarian in the Tibetan yeah. plateau, which is like yeah. impossible, right? right. Like he makes that commitment. And, you know, you have stories of him where someone set an ant field on, on fire and he sits there for, you know, ever um, basically doing poa practice to send each and every one of these little beings to a pure land you know mm. that's a very very different way of understanding reality from you know most people going to the grocery store you know? yeah <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah. different it's a different well, thing when you watch footage of especially people who work with animals you know uh having this bond with some of them from birth and have you know you come you come and see them reunite at a later stage of life and there's a, there is an intrinsic uh spiritual in the white headian sense connection there uh soul connection uh that that you know you you can't make proofs for it again you don't want to get into the ontology of that but right it, there's there's an a uh, a you know, a subjective experience of that that is very, very real, uh, indeed. Yeah. So, so as we finish up here, is there is there anything else that lingering that you wanted to, to chat about or? <laughs> well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, um, we have. Yeah. yeah. So we figured it all out. So we're, I mean, we're, yeah, we're there. yeah right. We're, we're good. Yeah. yeah right. So uh, no one ever has to listen to your podcast again. Yeah. Well, I'll just hang again. it up. We're just good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just, uh, I think, uh, you know, I have to say, I, I have listened to your podcast, uh, and I'm um, really honored to be part of the crew that you brought mm. on here, because yeah. there's been some fantastic voices, and of course, yours is one of them, so thank you for, for this work, and for letting me be part of it, I'm really grateful. Oh, that's very sweet. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, and um, I, I really want to just name and appreciate your diligence and intentionality and study uh, has paid off. <laughs> I really, I really appreciate your perspective and your wisdom and 
just the overall integration that you bring to the larger conversation around not only theopoetics, but religion and philosophy. And I see that in class, but I also, obviously, we have now an hour snapshot of it here <laughs> to, to behold forever and ever. So thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate your voice and I look forward to more conversations to come. Excellent. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. Thank you.